Hey, Hotels.com here. Tired of the everyday? We know a hotel that's ready to unwind this weekend. Book hotels with spas in the Hotels.com app. Find your perfect somewhere. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you actually want to hear about. But in order to do that, we need to learn a little bit more about you. So go to podsurvey.com slash counterclock and take a quick anonymous survey that'll help us get to know you better. Once you've completed it, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash counterclock. C-O-U-N-T-E-R-C-L-O-C-K. Thanks for your help. This is episode 12. A flame. Just after 2.30 in the morning on Saturday, November 15th, 2014, a fire was tearing through a warehouse in an industrial park on the outskirts of Covington, Louisiana. Thick black smoke billowed out of the roof of a building at 17440 Hardhat Drive. Tall orange flames licked up and glowed brightly as the 13,000-square-foot metal structure buckled and neared collapse. The inferno required 18 firefighters from St. Tammany Parish Fire District 12 to race to the scene, which happened to be all of the personnel on duty that morning. A few hours and 12,000 gallons of water and foam later, additional staff from the Louisiana State Fire Marshal's office and the ATF arrived to help investigate. Around 10 o'clock in the morning is when it was safe for crews to walk into the charred rubble. The mounds of twisted metal and debris they saw were obvious proof that the fire had destroyed the warehouse and most of the contents inside. But thankfully, the building had been unoccupied at the time, so no one was harmed. A bad situation, no doubt, but all things considered, it had a positive outcome. At least, that's what the headlines from the Times-Picayune newspaper and WDSU news station seemed to convey. This burned-up property wasn't anything special. It was just your typical metal warehouse on a concrete slab with a bunch of vehicles, trailers, tools, and other various pieces of equipment sinking into patches of grass and gravel behind a wooden fence. What caught my attention when I first read about this fire, though, had to do with who the tenant of the warehouse was in 2014. Ricky Construction and Development was leasing the building when it spontaneously caught on fire. In 2012, before Bruce was murdered, Ricky Construction and Development had been the entity signing Bruce's paychecks. You see, after St. Tammany Parish acquired the assets of Southeastern Louisiana Water and Sewer Company in 2010, the business wasn't really an operable business anymore. So technically, Bruce became an employee of Ricky Construction and Development. So what this means is that a warehouse for the business Bruce worked for at the time of his death burned to the ground roughly two and a half years after he was murdered. Now, you might be saying, hey, who cares? Buildings burn down all the time. Probably a coincidence. But I'm not you. I'm me. And this is counterclock. I don't end sentences with the words, who cares? Probably just a coincidence. In my line of work, coincidences are rare. And any investigator who's worth their salt will tell you, a coincidence should never be discounted. 
So I did a lot of digging to figure out what caused the 2014 warehouse fire. What exactly happened? And what reports were still around that could help answer those questions? But before I made my first phone call or fired off a flurry of emails, I had a brain Rolodex moment. I remembered something I'd read in one of the deposition transcripts from Ken Dutrick's lawsuit with Sela from back in 2011. It's this short exchange between Ken's lawyer and Jared Rickey, where Ken's attorney is asking Jared about what Sela staff did with the company's data and financial files after Sela sold its assets to the parish. Here's the exchange verbatim taken directly from the deposition transcript. Question. When you sold the assets of Sela to the parish, certain of the assets of Sela to the parish, did that include computer systems? Answer. Yes. Question. Did that include the servers upon which emails that were sent to your email address at Sela were stored? Answer. Yeah, they took the computers from the office itself. Question. And did you maintain a copy of your computerized records? Answer. Not really, no. When I would get an email, I would print them out and give them to the girls to put in the files. Question. What files were those? Answer. Whatever file the email might have been related to. Question. Did, when you sold the assets of Sela, did you keep or sell those files? Answer. We kept, the majority of those files went to the parish. We kept some of the files. The financial data files and those kinds of things, we kept. Files as it related to regulatory compliance went to the parish. What this exchange indicated to me was that after the SELA sale to the parish wrapped up, staff put copies of some of the company's data and financial files, as well as employee communications, into storage. It's conceivable that the storage referred to in the deposition transcript could have been the Hardhat Drive warehouse. And because Bruce was the chief financial officer of SELA and Ricky Construction and Development for many years, It's also conceivable that his work product ended up in those stored files. This is why I felt it was necessary to investigate the 2014 fire a little more. I started my journey for information at the station for St. Tammany Parish Fire District 12, which happens to be in Covington. The department's chief of communications helped me right away. Do you have a card or anything? Because I'm going to have to look for this report because it's on a different system than we use. The good news? He was confident their report from 2014 was still in an older database. The downside? I was going to have to be patient. Give me some time, uh, but I should be able to get to it next week. While I waited, I had a public records request pending with the Louisiana State Fire Marshal's office for any records they had. And man, did that inquiry pay off. The state provided me with a detailed report from its investigator, as well as an entire CD with close to 200 photographs from the scene. A wonderful records clerk named Susan convinced someone at her office to dig through a bunch of dusty boxes in a storage barn. Yes, an actual storage barn. And that's where they said all of the older case files were kept. Around the same time, I also submitted a Freedom of Information Act request with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, commonly known by the acronym ATF. 
My request was put in a long queue, so I wasn't holding my breath for it to be fulfilled anytime soon. While I waited, I read through and reviewed the documents and pictures I'd already received from the local and state fire investigating agencies, and I found some really questionable things. The pictures clearly show intact gas cans left in the middle of the fire debris. There were also lots of filing cabinets and boxes filled with folders and documents bunched together in what looked like an office space. And then there was the wildest thing of all, clumps of hay and dry grass in piles on top of the filing cabinets, or just tossed all over the paperwork. I've put these scene pictures on the blog post for this episode, so definitely go take a look for yourself. What these photos showed was so profound to me that I knew I was looking at something way out of my depth. I don't have a lot of knowledge on what should or shouldn't be at a fire scene, and I'm certainly no expert in what constitutes potential arson. I knew I was going to need to bring in a consultant with that specific area of expertise. But while I made some calls and waited to hear back, I read through the reports I'd received and discovered yet another oddity. Despite initial investigators on the scene labeling this fire as undetermined and in need of further investigation, no further investigation was ever done by St. Tammany Parish or the Louisiana State Fire Marshal's office. When I asked the state why that was, the agency told me that their investigation was closed administratively after the fire investigator who initially worked the fire and his supervisor both stopped working at the state fire marshal's office. When I asked why the case hadn't just been reassigned to another investigator after those employees left, a spokeswoman told me she didn't know the answer to that question, and the only person who would was an old supervisor who died in 2021. The local fire department didn't have an explanation for me either. They told me it was just closed, just because, no reason. I didn't like the feeling I was getting based on these responses. So in order to get some answers, I went back to square one and contacted the first fire investigator who'd been on scene in 2014. They had a file cabinet here, file cabinet there, file cabinet over there, they were just there. There was random stuff just all over this whole entire uh, warehouse, warehouse, After midnight on July 6th, 2012, three teenage girls walked into the thick Appalachian woods somewhere along the Mason-Dixon County line. Hours later, under the glow of a nearly full moon, only two walked out. You may have heard about the Skylar Niece case of three teenage girls a pact to kill, and one violent night under the stars deep in the West Virginia woods. But you've never heard it like this. From Waveland, I'm Holly Malay. And I'm Justine Harmon. This is Three. Jason Dyer is the former fire investigator from St. Tammany Parish Fire District 12 who was called to the Hard Hat Drive scene in 2014. He works for a neighboring fire department now, but despite all of the fires he's fought in his career, he remembers what he witnessed at Hard Hat Drive really well, even now, almost 10 years later. The fire was still active when I got there. It had a lot of storage. It was like mainly used for storage. It wasn't like a warehouse for equipment, like heavy equipment or for, you know, like a mechanic shop or anything like that. They had a lot of bay doors on it, where, but they had a lot of storage inside, filing cabinets, 
um, building materials, you know, just all sorts of things. They had gas cans that were just located sporadically throughout the, the building. Some had gas in them, some were empty. And then they had hay that was all over the building. That, you know, really was kind of like, okay, this is weird. You heard him correctly. He said hay. And not just like a single bale of hay. There were small piles of it on top of the filing cabinets and thrown on boxes of paperwork. Hay is something that is, can easily burn. When it gets in contact with fire, it burns. Well, when it, the way it was kind of spread out, it kind of looks like it was there for the intentional burn, the intention to burn something. Jason told me that at the time, he didn't have enough in front of him to definitively rule the fire as arson, because there were also a lot of other things inside and outside of the building that could have been possible causes. Stuff like chemicals, stoves, propane tanks, an electric golf cart, batteries, generators. And because of how hot it had gotten inside the warehouse and the fact that the steel support beams had collapsed over the main scene, it was too difficult for Jason to know if someone had started the fire. The only helpful information he had to work with came from the man who'd called 911. The caller was 53-year-old Calvin Cunningham, a friend of the Ricky family. Calvin told investigators he was living in an RV on the property along with two dogs. According to the fire investigation reports, he told authorities that around 2.30 a.m. he'd returned to the RV to go to bed, but then shortly after he dozed off, he woke up and he noticed the video monitor screens for the surveillance cameras on the outside of the warehouse were blacked out. Now, you're probably asking, wait, what screens? Where were the video monitors? The answer is, I don't know. No further details about Calvin's story are in the investigative reports, and Calvin himself never responded to my request for comment. I've called him and left messages, but still haven't heard back. Based on the story he told Jason Dyer at the scene, though, I gather that whatever ability Calvin had to view what was happening on the cameras was some kind of monitor he had with him in the RV. He said when he physically walked outside of the RV to see what was up, he saw smoke and flames coming out of a side door of the warehouse. Surveillance cameras seemed like a good place for Jason Dyer to get more information. They told us that they had cameras set up on the building. Then they they record. They told us exactly where to find the DVR. We went to that location. The DVR was there. Everything was still plugged in. It was soaking wet. It had heat damage to it. We believe that the chances of getting anything off of that DVR is very slim. But that's what the ATF and all of its federal government lab money was there for, to swoop in and save the day, which it did. ATF took that and we were able to pull the video. We had to, we got the video of it and it, that video did indeed show where that fire started from. According to Jason, the video footage showed something he wasn't expecting. The fire actually began on the exterior of the building. If you're facing the building, on the left side, there was a, they had a fence, and behind that fence, located right next to the building, the metal building, was a dog house. And they had a dog, they had two dogs that lived in that house. I'm gonna say it's within the first 20 to 25 feet of the, of the front of the building. So it's, it's close to the front of the building. 
you see smoke start uh, just all of a sudden smoke starts coming out of that doghouse when the light smoke starts coming out the dog comes out right away and then you see it just progressively start burning more and more and the dog actually takes a seat outside and just looks at his burn at his doghouse burning the video can't lie we know the fire started in that doghouse now what exactly started how did it start we can't answer that because all that stuff was destroyed after Jason and the other investigators questioned Calvin, they spoke with Ricky Construction and Development's manager, Bryant Caruso, as well as Jared Ricky himself. Jason said the men told him a heat lamp stayed in the doghouse for the dogs, but none of them knew for sure if it was on when the fire started. And according to Jason, he and the investigator from the state fire marshal's office didn't look through the fire debris to find out if what the men had said about the heat lamp was true. The investigative reports state that Jared told authorities the last time he'd been on the property was 3 o'clock Friday afternoon, roughly 12 hours before the fire. He'd been handing out paychecks to his workers. Everyone from the construction business said employees were the only people who would have had access to the warehouse. Subcontractors could get in the fenced area, but only employees had keys to the actual building. According to the fire reports, the doors to the warehouse were determined to be locked when firefighters first tried to make entry. After speaking with the tenants, Jason then interviewed the property owner, a man named Frank Reicherend. Frank was bummed his property had sustained such catastrophic damage, but he couldn't offer investigators much else in the way of information. He filed an insurance claim for $700,000, and his tenants, Ricky Construction and Development, reported estimated content losses of $500,000. I spoke with Frank on the phone last year. He still owns the parcel of land on Hardhat Drive. After the 2014 fire, he told me he demolished the old warehouse and built a new one. At the time of the fire, he said the investigators told him they suspected arson but just couldn't prove it. He told me that when he arrived on scene, he was surprised to learn hay had been thrown all around inside and that there was a man living in an RV on the property. He had not authorized that. But in the end, Frank didn't ask many questions because he just wanted to get his insurance money and work on constructing a new building so he could continue making rental income. He didn't lease to Ricky Construction and Development again after the fire. Even with Jason's interview complete, though, I still had a lot of unanswered questions about the warehouse fire. A few things just didn't add up to me. One, the piles of hay do not look right. And two, I want to know exactly what the footage from the warehouse's surveillance cameras shows. Based on what Jason Dyer told me, the video seems like it could be really compelling and clear up a lot of things. I wanted to review the clips for myself, but the problem was, the ATF was taking a very long time to review my request. Eventually, nine months after submitting my FOIA, the Department of Justice agreed to release the ATF's case file to me. What I got from the government were 24 pages of responsive material, but no video. To be clear, the video is legally releasable to me, but the ATF stated it was unable to process the video as part of my request at this time. Put plainly, it's choosing not to give me access to the video. So I had no choice but to solely rely on the written reports. And based on the ATF agent who handled this case, 
What's an absolute fact is that fire crews from St. Tammany Parish were notified about the fire via 911 call from Calvin Cunningham at 2.42 a.m. Fire engines got to the warehouse at 2.45 a.m., which is a response time of 3 minutes and 48 seconds. When the crews arrived, they saw that the inside of the building was fully engulfed, and Calvin reported seeing the same thing when he first dialed 911. What's different between local and state fire investigators' reports and the ATF's documentation is when Calvin told investigators he got back to the warehouse. You see, if you read the local and state reports, they indicate Calvin said he got back to his camper at 2.30 a.m. and didn't see any fire. But then he woke up a few minutes later and walked out and saw fire glowing from inside the building. Now, if that's true, then in the few short minutes between Calvin allegedly falling asleep after 2.30 to when he woke up and called 911 at 2.42, the fire from the doghouse had time to spark and then somehow travel into the warehouse where it was raging by the time Calvin woke up. However, if you read the ATF documents related to this case, they tell a very different story, specifically regarding Calvin's timeline. The ATF investigator's report states that there were multiple cameras on the property. Two were inside the building that showed parts of a kitchen near an office area, and a few other cameras showed the outside of the building. Also, according to the ATF, there were two doghouses on the property, not one. Anyway, the cameras were motion activated, so there are chunks of time where they were not recording. Their timestamps were also not synced to real time. So the ATF agent who reviewed the footage had to somewhat guess as to when exactly the clips that were recorded were actually recorded. According to the agent's narrative of the DVR footage, Calvin Cunningham is seen arriving at the warehouse property at 12.34 a.m., not 2.30 a.m. He's seen on camera making his way through the warehouse and eventually into the RV at 12.37 a.m., A minute or two later, he goes back into the warehouse's kitchen to get something from the refrigerator, then returns to his RV at 12.48 a.m. Two minutes later, at 12.50, a camera on the outside of the building shows light smoke coming from one of the doghouses near the front of the warehouse. By 2 a.m., both doghouses are burning. Between 2.09 a.m. and 2.37 a.m., the cameras inside the warehouse activate, and they show smoke and flames progressing from the outside of the structure to the inside. Then the cameras all go dark or distort footage beyond recognition. The ATF agent noted it was impossible to know if someone went inside the building at any point between 2.09 a.m. and 2.37 a.m. In the end, the ATF concluded that the fire was accidental. It closed the case on its end in May of 2015 then returned the DVR and its contents back over to Reiki Construction and Development. The ATF didn't identify or allow me to interview the special agent in charge of its investigation. So I brought in the next best thing, an expert fire investigator with equally as much professional credibility and experience. I was able to review the fire incident report. That's from the fire department itself. I was able to review the uh, state fire investigative report, and then I reviewed the... uh... That's Dale Risen, owner of Risen Fire Consultants. He's a retired firefighter from Florida with more than two decades of experience investigating fires, arsons, and explosions. 
I hired him to independently review documents and pictures from the warehouse fire and then give me his professional opinion. At the time of our interview, the ATF had not fulfilled my records request, so Dale only reviewed the reports and pictures from the local and state entities who investigated this fire. After he studied the case without any input from me, we met up to discuss his findings. There's not a lot of time for that fire to get out of control with the available fuel that's in there unless somebody adds fuel that's not supposed to be there, like a flammable or combustible liquid like gasoline, turpentine. Dale says the evidence shows there was another point of origin inside the warehouse, specifically in a small office area that sustained heavy damage. He also believes the piles of hay on the filing cabinets nearby are suspicious. All the fire damage is towards the front in the office area. Some of the hay was burned, other hay wasn't burned. I didn't understand why this business would have either bundled hay or rolled hay. They've got some galvanized pipes and they have some generators and hay was thrown all over them. And it wasn't in in piles, it was just thrown on top of them, almost looking like somebody was spreading hay around. When hay dries out, it becomes very combustible um, to where it's very easy to light on fire. However, when hay burns, it burns fast. It won't produce a lot of heat unless there's other combustibles around it. So that's why you see some damage to the um, filing cabinets, but the filing cabinets stayed intact because there wasn't enough heat that was being produced by the hay to damage them. It almost looked like somebody purposely put hay on top of all the filing cabinets because they wanted them to be destroyed. They wanted the contents to be destroyed. Why the local fire department and state fire investigator took so many photographs of the filing cabinets and the boxes that were full of uh, uh, paper documents with the hay on them, because that's unusual. It's an unusual area to store hay. Hay is a very combustible product. It catches on fire easily. And I think they were trying to show anyone that would have looked at the photographs that this is an unusual area and it could have been a point of origin. Something he pointed out about the filing cabinets that I hadn't noticed before is that they're all grouped together in a cluster in the middle of the building. Some filing cabinets, you can't even open up the drawers without moving the filing cabinet. He noticed something else odd about them, too. Two of those filing cabinets, the biggest ones, are on a wooden pallet, and there's a forklift that's hooked up to the pallet like they were moving those filing cabinets. Why were they moving the filing cabinets? If I was on scene as the initial investigator, um, I would have pulled those filing cabinets open. I would have gone through the documents in, in the boxes just to see what documents were there. And none of the photographs show anyone opening the filing cabinets and showing the paperwork that was in there, uh, opening the boxes and showing what type of paperwork was in there. I'd like to know if it was things related to the business, like accounts receivable, accounts payable. Me too, Dale. Me too. The red gas cans in various places of the warehouse stuck out to Dale as well. I did see in two different photographs, two different, look to be five-gallon plastic red gas cans that you normally buy at a hardware store. Um, And one was sitting on top of some galvanized pipe, which you normally wouldn't leave a gas can on top of pipes. 
So it's not, it's a very unusual place to put it. And the other one was in the middle of the floor uh, of the warehouse, in the middle of the warehouse, which again, you wouldn't normally just leave a gas can in the middle of a warehouse. You'd have a place to store it someplace in the warehouse. Dale says the fact that the plastic cans weren't destroyed means one of two things. One, the fire never reached their location, so they kind of just sat there unharmed. Or two, their contents were emptied out elsewhere in the building, and they were later abandoned out of harm's way. I definitely know for sure that where we found the gas cans, that there was no flammable liquid poured in those areas where the gas cans were found because they would have been melted. Regarding whether a heat lamp was inside one or both of the dog houses on the property, Dale doesn't have enough information to determine if that's true. Just like the ATF stated in its report, no traces of damaged heat lamps were found in the fire debris. It doesn't mean they didn't exist. It just means that the investigators on scene didn't look for them and didn't find them. In Dale's professional opinion, he doesn't think a heat lamp, even if it did exist and malfunction, could have been the only point of origin for the warehouse fire. I have a separate small wooden structure that's not attached to the larger structure. My smaller structure is my doghouse. It's not close enough to produce enough heat to that AB corner to start that structure on fire. It would have to be right up against the structure in order to produce enough heat to start something inside on fire. Because we can't see the video, it's unclear how close the dog houses actually were to the warehouse. Dale thinks the initial investigators from St. Tammany Parish, the state fire marshal's office, and the ATF should have done a more thorough job of investigating, or at a bare minimum, looked underneath the mounds of fire debris for any further clues. The fire department and the state investigator didn't clean the floor and didn't take photographs of the floor. And all investigators do that to try and rule out any type of an arson fire. Basically, it's called uh, uh, debris sweeping. We clean the debris away with shovels. We then bring a fire hose in. We uh, uh, blast it with a fire hose to move everything out of the way, and then we let it dry. When it dries, if anyone is pouring any type of flammable combustible liquid, it all comes up in a pattern. It's a beautiful pattern that we can show a jury in a courtroom that was actually a poor pattern of ignitable liquid, that somebody poured that, and this is arson. And you didn't see any evidence of that sort of investigative method done in this case. Right. And I, I couldn't tell if they even looked at the floor and cleaned the floor to look for those patterns because they didn't photograph that at all. And you're supposed to as an investigator. I didn't see anywhere in anyone's report that they took samples, evidence samples. And in that type of a fire, I would have taken multiple samples, at least at least six different samples in six different areas. In Dale's opinion, the investigators' interviews with the 911 caller, the tenants, and the property owner were lacking attention to detail as well. That person should be interviewed multiple times to see where he saw the fire first, what did it look like, um, what did he do in regards to it, um, what was he doing before the fire, why was he even on property, I wasn't really impressed with him, but it appears that they only interviewed him once. And if they interviewed him more than that, they didn't put it in the report, which they should have. 
The building owner, we want to investigate them to see how long have they had the structure. Uh, do they own the structure outright with the property appraiser's office? Um, if they pay a mortgage on it, are they up to date with paying their mortgage? Because we, we don't want this to be an ar- an, what we call an arson for profit. They should be interviewing employees of this and asking them, um, how long have you worked for the business? Has the business been making a profit? Do they have uh, any clients or customers that are unhappy with the work they have done that would come in, try and get back at them? Do they have any employees that they've fired in the past six months that threatened to all get back at you because you fired me? Um, again, I don't see where any of that was, was done in the report either. And lastly... Dale says the investigation into the warehouse should never have been closed without further follow-up. The fact that it was is inexplicable to him. When I hear that Louisiana went ahead and administratively closed this because the lead investigator is no longer with them and the supervisor passed away, if it's administratively closed, it can be reopened at any time and should have been. And they should have told you that they couldn't release the information to you under public public information because it's still what an active case. It's just temporarily administratively closed because there's no it hasn't been worked in a couple years. But if they go ahead and release the information to you, that tells me they've permanently closed it. They don't plan on reopening it at all. It should be investigated fully. And if it is suspicious in nature or what we call an incendiary fire, an arson fire, the investigators need to keep that file open for as long as evidence or you know, written statements are coming in to aggressively f- try and find the person that started this fire, just like in a murder case. This is a set fire. This is not an undetermined fire, it's a set fire. There's too many clues of, of what was left on scene, of what was set on fire, uh, that this just screams arson, arson, arson. So where does this leave me? Well, a little confused, mostly frustrated, and kind of validated. I come back to the question I asked at the end of the last episode. Does this relate to Bruce Kachira's murder case? And my answer is... I don't know. What I know is true is that Bruce oversaw the financial operations of a company that's office and warehouse burned to the ground two years after his murder. The initial investigator for that fire felt it was suspicious, but didn't probe further. The ATF determined the fire was accidental, but is unwilling to release the video footage that would support that. An expert consultant I hired found the fire should have been ruled arson, But no one has ever proven that. So that's where that story ends. But it's not where my investigation ends. There's one more incident loosely connected to Bruce Kachira that I need to tell you about. I took out running because I heard the shots, man. I was just running because I heard gunshots, man. And it's going to take us back to where this all started. The Mark 7 Apartments. You. Hi, I was looking for... Uh, speaking. The coincidence is very crazy that it's the same area that their bodies were laying. That's difficult. None of this has ever come up. They've never brought up the 2016 shoot. Like, anything. Anything. That's next in episode 13, Another Body. Listen right now. 